time is an abyss. But don't worry, you're not in that abyss alone, because the pod boys are here to spit at you. I'm... <laughs> I'm a sad old man who lives in a castle. Peace <laughs> Van Rossum. I'm the king of the rats. Ben Sheets. <laughs> Blair, I'm here to suck your blood. I am Cleveland Mosher. Now you have to talk like that for the rest of the podcast. It is my will <laughs> to do so. We are Blair. creatures of the night, and we are talking about Nosferatu, not the F.W. Murnau silent film from the 20s. No. But Werner Herzog's 1979 remake. I think... On the last episode, I said 77, but it is 79, so don't at me. Uh, I was only two years off. Cut me some slack. This is the second Dracula movie we've watched so far. On the yes, show. that's true. We also, geez, like over a year ago, watched, uh, what was it called? Blood for Dracula, yeah, the Andy yeah, Warhol yeah, produced yeah. one with Udo Kier. This is a very, very different Dracula film. This is one of my favorite, if not my favorite, vampire movies of all time. I mean, there are a lot of them out there, so it's, and there are, they all span varying subgenres, so it's kind of hard to say that definitively. It's definitely in the canon. Yeah, for sure. Um, uh, this is the, as far as I know, the only horror film that Werner Herzog ever made. Yeah, I mean, unless you count, like, Grizzly Man, well, <laughs> which I find to be a horror movie. It Grizzly, is Grizzly. Grizzly Man is horrifying in its own right, but uh, this is the only um, standard definition of horror film that, that Herzog ever made, and it is one of the several films he made with the... Uh, legendary maniacal klaus kinski the absolute madman the klaus absolute kinski. literal madman klaus kinski <laughs> i think kinski and herzog have one of the greatest uh most notorious and infamous uh actor director uh relationships of all time yeah well it's funny because they're infamous for butting heads all the time um, there's, uh, a great documentary called My Best Fiend, all about their strange relationship over the course of several films that they did together. Honestly, the, the combination of the two is one of the classic director-actor combos up there with, like, PTA and, uh, Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis. Day yeah. Or, uh, Scorsese and De Niro. Well, like, that's the thing. You wouldn't, you wouldn't think that they butt heads so much just from watching the movies they've done together because, like, Herzog is such a fantastic director and Kinski always gives, like, such a magnetic, powerful performance and, like, you would, you would think that they would be in total sync, but not at all. <laughs> uh, in, in fact, the only way they were able to get Kinski's performance of Dracula in this movie is uh, Herzog wanted a a quieter, more toned-down Dracula, and Kinski wanted an upbeat, energetic Dracula. So Herzog would just taunt him until he would go into just, like, absolute rages and throw a temper tantrum for a while until he tired himself out, and then they would shoot. So that's why in every scene, Dracula is just, like, so drained and exhausted, which, for the performance, is 
incredible because like this and is the backstory too. Like that's I mean, yeah, so it's good. it's a it's a hilarious story, but like that directorial technique of just tiring your actor out with a temper tantrum before filming, like this is a No, v- it sounds like how you'd like sadistically manipulate a toddler. Like, right, exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, it doesn't sound like it would work on an adult man. And then second off, like it but just doesn't well, from any perspective. Well, that's the thing about Herzog in general, man. Like all of his movies are great, but a lot of times I find the the stories that he has about the making of his movies more interesting than the movies himself. There's a great book called Herzog on Herzog where it's like a book-length interview with him and some dude talking about all his films. And some of the stories, especially with him and Klaus Kinski, are just one of a kind. I know on Aguirre, Wrath of God, they were shooting in the uh, South American jungle and uh, some of the tribesmen that were helping out on the shoot straight up went to Werner Herzog and were like, if you want us to kill Kinski, we can do it for you. <laughs> and Herzog had to think about it for a while. But it's such a, an amazing, strange relationship between the two. But like... Yeah, because isn't Herzog quoted as saying like that the rats, the the massive number of rats that they had to facilitate on the production were easier to work with than Kinski? Yeah, in in this movie, yeah, that's absolutely true. And yes. there's a lot of rats. He said the the rats were more well behaved than Kinski was. And to finish your point, sorry. Um, well, that's the thing though, because like Kinski is mainly known for Herzog movies because I feel like Herzog is the only one who can work with Kinski. Yeah, you know? I, Kinski did a lot of stage acting, <laughs> yes, didn't he? Yes, o- he did. Outside of his stuff with Herzog, I um, think that's mostly what he was known movies, for. you know, Herzog was the only one who could really hone in a great performance from him. I mean, he's done a few other movies besides that, but... Well, like, Herzog just happens to know how to manipulate a great performance exactly, out of Kinski. Exactly, exactly. Rather than, like, please just give me a good performance. He just knows how to fucking push Kinski's buttons and get the right energy that he needs for the scenes. Yeah. Which is honestly the hallmark of a fantastic director. If you haven't seen anything Klaus Kinski's been in, uh, imagine a 70s version of Nick Cage. Cage, yeah, absolutely. where it's just Such an absolute magnetic presence who can just go off the rails sometimes, but he's giving it a hundred percent, a hundred ten percent, so it works. Well, it's this movie is interesting because it's certainly the most understated uh, Kinski performance that I've ever seen, specifically because Herzog wore him out before getting him to uh, shoot the scenes, and it. It creates a fantastic effect because this is uh, narratively this is a, a traditional take on the on the Dracula uh, story originally written by Bram Stoker and then retold by Murnau in the twenties uh, in the original Nosferatu. But in this, like rather than Dracula being sort of like this charismatic sex symbol almost, this is a Dracula who is like truly burdened by the weight of the centuries that he's lived and the loneliness and isolation, all of these hundreds of years that he spent alone in his ruined castle uh, in the mountains uh, in Transylvania. You you can see it in Kinski's performance. Oh, absolutely. How, just well, how exhausted The, the amazing is. part like, about it is, while it is one of Kinski's most restrained performances, it's one of the most physical 
physical interpretations of Dracula. Absolutely, hundred percent. I was, yeah. yeah, I was about to comment on uh, how much sense it makes that he has like a stage background. Yeah, I didn't know that until just now, and it it really it really comes through clearly, like in his performance. He has such a great like sense of physicality and body language in uh, all of his movements, whether it's his exhaustion or even when he does have those like moments of displayed power there's so much nuance there and like even like when he's doing the hand motions yeah his exactly his full body you know is incorporated yeah into when he it. comes Just the way he in walks. to uh suck the guy's blood and he yeah, comes into it. the room and he, it's such a physical movement that yeah. he makes he speaks um, so much with his body, but all I meant by understated is that he's not just like that. He's exhausted. That, that he's not like <laughs> that. He's not like maniacal and yes, crazy yes. and bug-eyed and just like vibrating. He's not like Renfeld, right? Right. He's not like he's, a, he's not like Bela Lugosi's Dracula, right? Exactly. Um, well, which yeah. I do love, but for very different reasons. Yeah. yeah Herzog, uh, during the production of this film, uh, stated that he believes that Murnau's Nosferatu is the uh, great. German film of all time. Gonna have to hard disagree with you on that one, Werner. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, I like has a pretty big backlog. Yeah, Fritz Lang has a huge backlog, and honestly, like I think the original Nosferatu is extremely overrated, in my opinion. Like Murnau's, Murnau's one of the greats. Murnau's like, masterpiece. No Murnau's masterpiece for me always will be uh, Faust. The Last Laugh is pretty incredible as well. That one's a little more noirish, but it has elements of horror as well. Sunrise is pretty good as well. Yeah, I mean, no doubt Murnau was a was an incredible director. Uh, I just think it's. It's strange to me how most people only know Murnau for Nosferatu, which I think has about 15 really excellent, iconic minutes, but the entire film is like two and a half hours Honestly, I think the main reason behind that is it's a good poster child for German Expressionism because a lot of the other German Expressionist uh, movies are like three hours long. And Max Max Schreck in his iconic uh, rat-like vampire look. uh, Yeah, I I think you're you're right. Poster Child is a great one. Yeah, well, it's it's much easier to recommend the original Nosferatu than like Dr. Mabuse because it's an hour and a half versus like three hours well i mean the original nosferatu is like is like two and a half hours it's a long it's a long movie at least there there's like five different yeah cuts. there's like, there's like five different, different cuts, cuts of, of it, it um the one that i remember seeing in film school was like two and a half hours and i was so fucking bored for most of it um but that's why we're not talking about that one we're talking about this one which is a tight 90 minutes um, or a little over 90 minutes, um, and uh, I think does a better job of capturing the the ethos and the essence of Bram Stoker's story than the original Nosferatu does. Speaking of, there was a YouTube video I watched a while back. I don't remember, Ben, if you linked it to me or if I just found it, but it's a in-depth analysis of which of the Dracula films are most closely... Uh, oh, Lindsay Ellis did that? Was it Lindsay Ellis? No, it wasn't Lindsay Ellis. I know she does someone a, a series where she goes through. Yeah, he goes through and he breaks down like all of the films for every point. But he, he does have like a score set at the end of like which one is like relatively definitively like the most accurate to Bram Stoker. In the late 60s and 70s, 
like that was like peak Dracula season. Like, I think there, there were, were so many Dracula I think movies. Five Dracula movies came out in seventy nine. Oh, at least I uh, this yeah this one in and the seventies there were well yeah in a the dozen plus in the seventies yeah but in this year specifically that Nosferatu came out there were four others I don't remember which ones but I I did read that tidbit it was the angry video game nerd from Cin- Cinemassacre who did it that's who it was okay yeah the thing is like after this one they kind of died off for a while just because I, in my opinion you can't follow this one yeah um, i think, I think it's the, hard. the the next big dracula movie was uh the, probably the coppola probably one. coppola's and was at 90 that's the next big one that i can think of too so like there was a drop off after this one of about 12 years i guess plus there's all of the like however many uh christopher lee dracula movies there are oh yeah um, i actually i haven't seen any of those uh they've been on my list for a while i i know that I've seen christopher the, lee is the like one of the original one the todd browning oh um, yeah one which is great Going a little further into the performances, I did want to talk about Renfeld. Oh my god! Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, if we want to talk about physical over-the-top performances, look no farther. Uh, yeah, Mr. Renfield, what a what a fucking goofy character. He's the uh, harbinger of Dracula, the the guy who uh, sort of goes crazy from the visions that Dracula has been granting him and sort of goes on to pave the way for Dracula's arrival in uh, in the village. Um, and, yeah, he is just so over the top, just constantly cackling and just bug-eyed and jittery, and uh, he's hilarious. It's an amazing him. performance. It, yeah. it goes from being funny to being, like, a little ominous because it's so so big it's so overstated yeah. yeah it's he's the biggest performance in the uh or the most over-the-top performance in the movie i agree yeah renfield has always been like one of my favorite characters uh just in the like in the narrative yeah. to begin with because he's such a, a fantastic character actor opportunity like oh, the, absolutely. the crazy mad servant is always a blast to watch um i remember the the actor who plays uh, Renfield in the Bela Lugosi version, like as a child, and just loving like the sequences with him with like the heavy eye makeup and stuff, and his his mad laughter, like what a what a great character to portray. And I, I do I do love this uh, version. Yeah, especially towards the end when uh, Dracula finally shows up. Uh, oh my in god, town, yes! And they finally meet, and it's just like this great shot of of Kinski in his full makeup, just like standing silhouetted against the sky with his like huge talons and stuff. And just Renfield just like inches his way into frame slowly and just starts like rubbing his face on like Dracula's robes and stuff. And Dracula just sort of like lazily brushes him aside. It's so good. And plot wise too, like essentially what happens is Renfield shows up and fan fanboys all over him. Right. And and Dracula just like sends him off to, go deal with something like you get the vibe that he's just like even like in dracula's like facial expressions you get the vibe that he's just like sending him off to keep him busy because he's so annoying right exactly (laughs) i love i love when they have him in the asylum too and he's just like clutching the giant cage full of flies and like every time they try to take it from him he's just like (laughs) 
<laughs> it's, it, it's, it's amazing. So, it's so good. Uh, this is a movie that I, I think uh, finds a really strange balance between being like kind of laugh out loud funny and also like very, very sort of like dour and existential and poignant uh, in a way that I think that only Herzog can really master in that way. Oh, well, yeah, because Herzog has such a German comedic sensibility i would he's, say and he's such he's in he's an absurdist in so many ways too oh God, but yes. like so just like boundlessly nihilistic and existential yeah. one of my favorite i love herzog that, that summarizes herzog pretty well like he's, of, he's an existential absurdist yeah right. one of my favorite stories about herzog and his comedy was uh herzog famously does not understand sarcasm at all <laughs> Yeah, um, which I love. <laughs> uh, he told a story in Herzog and on Herzog about how back when he was uh, getting ready to shoot Julian Donkey Boy, Harmony Corinne called him on the phone and uh, pretended to be uh, some sort of artist trying to sell Herzog a painting, and Herzog was just getting so mad on the phone because he didn't know who this guy was, and he didn't want to buy his stupid painting. That's awesome. <laughs> and then after, like, 20 minutes of talking, uh, Har- uh, Harmony Corinne was like, it's it's me. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I'm just uh, pulling a joke on you. Yeah, my my first Herzog film, I think, was Cave of Forgotten Dreams. And I'll never forget that the film takes, like, a 20-minute aside to bring, like, and it's talking about, like, original, like, or, like, uh, like Mankind's, like, first art in the cave paintings. And there's, like, the movie has a 20-minute aside where they bring in a perfumist to smell the caves. Like, <laughs> what a... What a champ. Like, what a, what a, what a champ. Yeah, Herzog's awesome. He takes every... He's, like, so literal about everything, but also, like, everything has such importance to him, which is just fucking hilarious. Like, he he's so serious about, like, the least serious things, and it's just amazing. I, I fucking love Werner Herzog so much. Truly, if you capture the the, the scent of the caves, <laughs> you can understand the... Okay, I, I'm not going to try and do a Herzog voice, but I'm, I'm still stuck on my, my Nosferatu play. <laughs> yeah, I but. think at, I think at the end of this episode, I'll put in the audio clip of him talking about like, the trees, the, the chaos of the trees and the inherent madness of the jungle, um, because I think that's just like the perfect representation of, yes. of who Werner Herzog is. I agree. Um, but back to the to this film specifically, yes. um, there are a lot of exact replica shots of uh, the Murnau film in the movie, um, obviously as homage considering, you know, Herzog's love for the original, especially a lot of the stuff involving Dracula the like you can put the shots side by side and they're identical like that great shot of him uh, on the boat. Where he's like, sil- or where he's like lit from below against like the sails, and he's like slowly walking out in the boat with like his hands outstretched, and the shots of like him going into uh, Lucy's room, um, or I guess in in the original Dracula, it's Mina instead of Lucy, but that's beside the point. Well, no, I think I think it's isn't it. 
No, it's it's Mina Harker is Jonathan Harker's wife in oh. in the in the original or in the Bram Stoker story, and in this one, Mina is the friend of the family, and Lucy is is Jonathan's wife. Right, right. Because I know Lucy is, is Isabella Johnny. Yeah, I, I know that they did return a lot of the original names, all of them except for that one. Yeah, okay, okay. because because at this point, Dracula was in the public domain when uh, Murnau made his no. Nosferatu, uh, they changed. Be. They changed all the names, and still, even so, Bram Stoker's widow sued them. I think they destroyed most of the prints uh, because of that. But that's why all of the characters' names in the original Nosferatu are different. If there's any advocate for uh, loosening public domain laws, it's this movie. Right, exactly. The fact that this movie, if it was a more recent story, probably wouldn't be able to be made just because uh, public domain laws have shifted so much that Oh like, yeah. Even stuff from the 20s is still out of the public domain. Yeah, I think it has to be something like I think it's like 75 years without having any like well, heirs to take The thing is like, every time we get near the the time limit, um Disney advocates and lobbies Congress to push it further. Oh, um, yeah, because, thanks Disney. Because of Mickey Mouse. Of course. Um but I digress. This movie it's pretty uh faithful to the original for the most part i think more than anything though it captures the uh the gothic sensibility in such a great way you look at like dracula's castle and it the architecture is just fantastic from the interior and uh that's something i i came around on like after i watched it but in the middle of the film i was i was uh somewhat confused by it because like dracula's castle is such a hallmark visual like the from from a distance you know like looking out over the mountains and in this version they choose to make dracula's castle a a sort of a um well it's a a, phantasm like it's yeah it's it's ruins when mm -hmm. you see it from the outside there's several shots of just like a ruined facade yeah against the sky and i kind of love that and i kind of love how you don't i like it yeah the full scope of it from the outside at any point because it leaves more to the imagination and it makes it more labyrinthine yeah. in, a, in a way. I agree. In the moment, I was a little taken off guard by it. And I think it's because the transition, there really isn't a transition between the two. We have a shot of the crumbling ruins from a distance as Jonathan is approaching the castle. He gets in a, he gets in a carriage and gets out. And then he's just in a non-crumbling castle. We don't really get to, you know, see... uh, I'm not asking for, like, a weird ethereal, like, shift or anything that draws attention to it, because that's not what this film is about. You don't want a big matte painting of (laughs) spooky castle. (laughs) At all. At all. Like, um, especially if that's what they're going for. But we don't get anything from from Jonathan about that. And we don't really see him, like... We don't really get to enter and exit the carriage with him. He just, like, hops out of the carriage and then he's in, like, a castle. But we we do get something from him at the next day after his first meeting with Dracula when he's writing in his diary to Lucy. He talks about how strange and otherworldly the castle seems and how it feels to exist outside of time. 
And that's essentially what the, uh, like the gypsy peasants at the foot of the mountain tell him when he says he's going up there. It's like all that's up there is the ruins of a castle. And it's said that, you know, ghosts and, and specters like walk the halls and like, don't go up there. And that's why we, I think we keep seeing that little boy who's very badly playing the violin. I think, I think that boy is supposed to be a ghost. Yeah. That's, that's what the writings say about it for sure. And, like, I do agree, like, the it is well-established in the dialogue, and we see the two, but there's never any transition, like, into it. Like I, I think it does a good job because of that messing with your spatial orientation, because there is no transition, it's kind of jarring, and you're kind of thrown off. Even when he's exploring the castle, you don't have a great scope of where he's at at any point oh and that's fine yeah like i'm i'm really only talking about like the the initial sequence of them like getting on the carriage and getting off the carriage and i found it to be you know jarring more from a filmmaking perspective just because it's like oh they're on a different set now and it didn't it didn't feel like he had transversed or anything well that's one thing we should mention the editing of this movie is a little weird it is by far my biggest problem with the film and uh, i i don't think i have a problem with it but i will say that it's definitely untraditional it's it's definitely it's not it's not continuity editing by any means it's definitely herzog style yeah he does it in a lot of his movies Mm -hmm. i uh yeah want to harken back to the the golden egg episode that we did where I made a plea for having the opportunity to just like sit in a film and to uh to enjoy like just being in the moment and not having to like hurry along the narrative especially as I've gotten older I've come to like you know more slowly paced films uh which is you know relatively standard with like developing tastes and the first time I saw this movie when I was 18 I did not I was not I was not here for it. I didn't like how extensive the shots were. I found to enjoy them much more than I did the first time I watched it. But even still, with all that considered and that awareness in place, I still had some problems with a number of the shots. Like, I, I like overdrawn. I like sitting in the movie. But there were a number of sequences where they were extensive. Like, the castle sequences, the mountain shots... Or, like, shots of just Nosferatu walking. Those, I never had any problems with being as lengthy as they were. But there were several sequences that were lengthy that I didn't feel there needed to be an attachment to their length. Even for the sake of the style of the film, which is very drawn out and lengthy, they were beyond lengthy. There, you know, like, there's a sequence of, like, a traveling carriage or something that just keeps going. We see the Hulk commute, you know, of a character. And it's... It's like these shots will last like two minutes uh, or, you know, a minute and 30 or whatever of just like uh, of just this one sequence of a person walking. And there's nothing to that. There's nothing like creating a sense of dread. It just kind of takes me out. See, I actually disagree. I feel like it adds a lot of atmosphere to the movie. And Herzog is very known for his contemplative uh, pacing of his movies. I mean, look at something like Fitzcarraldo where it's three hours um, where half of it is just long, protracted shots of, you know, going down the river or stuff like that. I think, uh, especially in this movie, it adds to the atmosphere in a big way because everything around it is so moody and shot so well. Generally, I, I, agree. I would fully agree with that. 
I, I think that atmospheric shot, I mean, a- atmosphere is like my favorite, like uh, a static approach. And uh, I, I love sequences that I can just sit in. My, my issue is I don't think that a person just like walking down the street is atmospheric. I don't, I don't find that to be intriguing or, or even to build any, uh, any realism as it were. It's just a person walking down the street. Like it, it doesn't give the film any more presence or, or feeling. Uh, now, meanwhile, like the shots of like Johan approaching the castle, like that whole sequence is great. I love it. Like it's fine. But there's a lot of interim that just felt relatively arbitrary well, to me. Well, I, I think it's easy to d- dismiss something as walking down a street, but that doesn't play into much of the location itself and how much the location becomes part of the story as well. Um, I mean, you look at this the city itself, and by the end of the movie, it feels like Bloodborne almost, and how gone to shit it goes with all the rats. Right, yeah, once and... Dracula has come to the town and the plague starts spreading, I think the whole sequence of uh, Isabella Johnny walking through the city and, like, the square and just, like, all of the coffins and the dead horse and the rats and people, you know, dancing ring around the rosy and having these... Oh, yeah, uh, those are all great. And, and I and love that's them. Why, and I have that's, no complaints That's why those. having early shots of, you know, long periods of walking through the city where it's quiet and, you know, contemplative work for me because you see the contrast. You see by how the, the space the has changed. Yeah, I'm I'm inclined to agree. I think that I, I do think that maybe there's a bit of room to be trimmed in some of the yeah. in some of the the stuff in the city, but like where I'll disagree with you is in any of the like really long extended shots marking the journey to or from Transylvania because you know this takes place in the 1800s it's like horse is just about the best way you know or or sailing is the best way that you can get a place and it still takes fucking forever and i think in a more a more modern americanized film the way that they would cover the distance is either they would just cut between the places and we don't see the journey or they do it in montage of a bunch of short shots of the characters in different locations to show them traveling. Whereas in this one, rather than it be montage, it's one or two very long protracted shots of Jonathan like walking up a mountain or, you know, out of the village or riding his horse down a path. It's just like, I I think it does a really great job of giving you that sense of how extensive of a journey this is to get from place to place. I think it does, like, once there is intrigue. I'm there for it as soon as it does. But I agree. At the I think beginning of the I, film, I think at the beginning there is there is a, is a bit of a slow start. Yeah. I, I like don't... all the shots. I didn't have a problem with any shot in the film. The cinematography is wonderful, and I love how the the city is captured. It just there are a few shots where like it goes over like several seconds, where you're just like, okay, I have absorbed literally everything in this image. And there's not that much to absorb. Sure. Like, I I get that. I think another important thing to consider is that in this stage of Herzog's career, he was usually working on a very small budget with a very small crew. Mm. This film, this film was made with a crew of 16 people. That is tiny. That is an that is an extremely minuscule crew. And it's twice as many people as he had on the crew when he made a gear wrath of God. So, 
Like, I, I think that there's a, a certain degree of Herzog's uh, minimalism in, the, in this film is working within the constraints of having, like, a, a really tiny crew. Yeah, yeah. But and, I, I think a lot of the isolated shots uh, really play into the themes of loneliness and isolation in sure, the movie. Sure, yeah. A lot of times, especially on his journey there. Some of the stuff beforehand, it's I a little bit, It's a little trimmed. bit boring, but the buildup is, I, I think that the payoff once he gets to Dracula's castle makes that journey all the more satisfying it's a yeah, little, it's it makes, a little bit it makes it make more sense it's a too. bit it's a bit underwhelming in the moment but when he gets to the castle and he meets dracula and he sees this like weird monstrous old man with these like two inch long sharp fingernails and these big rat teeth and <laughs> like he's just alone in this castle and it's like you get the feeling like oh my god he traveled all this way and this is where he ended up yeah in just like <laughs> a really not good situation you know like and and then when you know midway through the movie when dracula leaves you know he finds jonathan's um locket that has the picture of lucy in it and like i want her so he you know leaves to go to go back to germany you know what a great distance that is and jonathan is like sick because he's been you know being fed on by dracula over this course of time but there's like a ticking clock he has to make it back to to his village so he can protect lucy you know from this horrible monster and just like you i think it just does a great job of giving you the feeling of like how insurmountable that distance is oh yeah no i and I, and I largely agree with, with all of that, too. And just so I can get this gripe out of the way and I can go back to praising the movie. <laughs> go for <laughs> Which it. Which I want to. Go for it. Um, is uh, also to do with the editing. Like, And it was one spot, again, early on in the film that forced me to kind of give the movie a bit of a side eye when it came to that specific aspect. Uh, and that's like when, when Jonathan is leaving, like on his horse, like there's a weird continuity error where he waves twice to the people. Like it catches him like mid-wave and then he waves again. And it's like... There's a little attention to detail, just like cutting that a little shorter, and you wouldn't have had that. Like, and I just it it struck me as like very even, amateurish. I didn't and even. Like, I, didn't, that. I didn't even. Yeah, like, really. and it kind of it it kind of started keying me back into that again. I and, mean. Yeah, I, I suppose so, but I don't even think there's anything wrong with a double wave, because, like, if you're going on a long journey away from your loved ones and you're not going to see them again for well, probably It's not like a double wave, time, it's like a like... jump cut. Like, he's, he's, like, halfway into waving, and then it cuts to a close-up of him, like, not waving yet, and then waving again. I didn't, it's I like, didn't even notice that. Yeah. One thing I want to talk about a little bit is the music. Oh, the yeah, music I think the score is great. Awesome. Is fantastic Su a surprising amount of major chords like a lot of the yeah the music like yeah, ends yeah. in like majors and i i, yeah, I really appreciate it's not it the that. kind of music that you would expect in something like this like yeah a lot of theremin yeah we're a weird amount of theremin but mm -hmm. i mean i guess it was the the late 70s so yeah. you know i, I 
I think theremin's underrated, but yeah, other than like it's, the, not, it's not like overstated wacky theremin either, because right. like theremin gets a gets a bad rap for that, and uh, this this is a well used. Well, and I think I think too, other than like you bring up a good point, Cleveland's like other than sort of the main theme, the Dracula's theme that starts the film and that we return to a few times, which is uh, very sort of spooky and dark. Uh, chanting um oppressive and heavy a lot of the music outside of that is more uh more uplifting even inside of that like even a lot of the chanting sequences like end on majors they end on like an upbeat like note or they have uh, transitions to majors like inside of the chants uh coming off of bloodborne and uh like so many other like really dark edgy vampire movies that that are so or just dark horror films in general that love to use chanting like horror chanting it's it's relatively positive like uh just by comparison of all these like really like you gonna die you know sort of stuff this one is there's still a few deuses in there there's still a few like things that give it like a still a holy vibe and it feels more real to the time and that it's it's sort of being invaded by this darkness as opposed to just being dark spooky chanting in the background to set the mood the, the scoring's great on, on that subject i uh want to talk a little bit about the uh the opening credits of the film the very beginning where we get that that yeah. piece the first time and it's just set over all of these shots of like mummies yeah um, like mummified corpses and which were real mummified corpses they went to uh mexico to shoot those i believe uh, in a museum those were actual mummies but i think it does a great job you know seeing them in this sort of like dark rotten looking castle and like you know this is nosferatu you know this is a vampire movie and i think it sets up a great context to just see real all bodies of, yeah all of these bodies that are are shriveled and dried and look like they've been drained of all of their blood because i mean it's kind of what mummification is to an extent yeah i think that that sets the tone really well especially after that transitioning into like the uh the slow-mo shots that we see a few times of like a bat flying fun fact that shot of a bat uh, because it's really hard to get slow-mo shots of bats that's from shot... like a nature documentary right yep that they, nice. they just got some footage from it works I, quite well I, yeah, yeah it's great i mean we see it a few times and and i think it's it's uh it's excellent especially considering you know like part of the whole vampire mythos is that like vampires can change their shape into a bat into a rat into a wolf children of uh, the night uh stuff like that so it's like there are a few times you know mid movie where we where we see those slow mo shots of the bat flying and it just gives you the impression that it is uh you know dracula out stalking the night in the form of a bat and having all of the rats swarming throughout the city at the end he brings the the plague with him in all of the the coffins full of dirt brought uh, from the grounds of uh the cemeteries of people who have been killed by the plague awesome stuff oh yeah like absolutely wonderful i to go back to the intro sequence one one minor like issue that kind of came uh uh, for me with it like not enough to take me out of it i don't want to clear it it's very minor but was like it's done like kind of like shaky cam it's the hand it's handheld i knew you were gonna say that it's handheld and it's it 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 opens with this like documentary sort of style almost i mean herzog is a documentarian and it shows it shows in the opening sequence and i don't 
I don't necessarily hate it because, like, it, again, adds a sense almost of realism, but it feels like a documentary from the 70s, not them documenting the time period. Well, I mean... And so, yeah, it was it was a little interesting. After that, like, it's... That, it that opening sequence is, is supposed to be one of Lucy's uh, prescient nightmares that she has a few times, because it cuts from after the those credits to her waking up screaming. So I think that that makes the, the handheld sense... Uh, of it work fine for me because you know, usually in your dreams you're seeing things through your own eyes so having that sort of handheld shaky cam style of the shots of all these mummies sort of makes you feel like you're there yeah, surrounded it gives it by sort of them a documentary authenticity yeah it, other which... rather than having like really clean smooth panning and dolly shots and stuff uh i i think that having the the handheld is like it makes it feel more oppressive because it feels like you are in this space with these uh with these bloodless bodies yeah documentary style is always polarizing for me like uh in both directions i mean like my opinion on it shifts fairly dramatically and it, often it can be hard for me to pinpoint why i like it in the sequence and why i don't because part of it can also like the authenticity can come from it's authentic it feels authentic because you're reminded it's being filmed on a camera that to me in this sequence i think for many and for yo you guys it did work and i think that that's that's totally fine and valid like well i i th- for, for me like it, it I, I was just sort of reminded that it was being shot on a film like shot on a camera in the 70s it's like, one of those ludo narrative things you know the documentary form itself of handheld and its own type of rule set informs what you're looking at a lot of times and because of that that brings context to things on its own when that works within a film to say something i think it gets much more of a pass for me um than it does when it's just used willy-nilly like yeah. i think the when reason you can't it, spot intention it, behind yeah it, it the, makes it a lot the reason why it works in this movie is because you know it brings more context to that yeah. that dream and you can you can yeah, spot just, you can spot the intent but i in, yeah. in the moment i right and it's I, the, the opening first time, shot so there is no context at that point the first uh, the me. first time i saw it i i thought it was a little bit confusing i think it's also just because we're so inundated by modern filmmaking where that kind of uh camera work is typically only used for like action scenes and stuff like that mm-hmm. and i think that we unintentionally bring some of our own context into it just based on what we're used to having seen uh i think that this is one of those movies that would be very hit or miss for most modern audiences i think i think your average moviegoer would have a lot of problems with this movie yeah to use the word again polarizing with the camera work and the editing and the pacing i think a lot of people would find it very boring and confusing at the same time though i think this one's still more accessible than the the silent film yes a hundred percent a hundred percent i agree and you know it's this is one of those films where i think that you you have to have a little bit of love and understanding for the the medium itself and and the art form in order to to get the most out of this film i would i would not blame somebody for being like this movie's 
boring. <laughs> nothing even nothing happens in this movie. I would be like, yeah, yeah uh, honestly, like you're kind of right. I, but... I, I, I'd blame a little bit because that's kind of how I felt when I watched it when I was 18, and well, I resent 18 year old me for feeling that if, way. Dude, if I had like, if I had seen this movie at 18, I probably would have felt the same thing. Yeah, like it's... was it like that college age where I was like, oh, I'm I'm college age, so I have to be cynical now. Like you know, kind of like approach. And it's a shame too because I watched it on Halloween night on a projector, like at a farm, and we all sat on hay bales to watch it. It Which was is a dope. wonderful experience. Like this um, is this is one of those movies that works because of the feeling it gives me a lot of the stuff. Like in terms of in terms of narrative and stuff happening, it's it's very light, you know? There's no action whatsoever. It's all about mood and world building and the sequences that work the best and that stick with me the most are the ones that that give you that like really overwhelming sense of mood like when uh lucy is walking through the the city that is just overrun with the plague and there's rats everywhere and she finds those people like eating uh uh you know having a banquet in the square outside kind of like the last supper but that there's just rats swarming all over their feet and around the table and stuff like that there's not much to that sequence outside of you know being visually very striking and creating a mood but it does so so well that i find it really impactful the same with the um the dinner scene with with jonathan and dracula on his first night there their first meeting like i find that scene was was so impactful for me that I the first time I saw it that I tried to replicate it in my senior thesis film because I like I was just so blown away by how powerful that scene was. I, I just love that so much as having Dracula just in darkness and hearing the wolves howling in the distance. And he says, the children of the night making their music, you'll never understand that you don't have the soul of a hunter. Me, but like he, he seems so unassuming because he's so quiet and tired and exhausted, but he still can't deny his, uh, his inherent, need to to hunt and to kill you know he he truly embodies that soul of a hunter like shit like that is just it, it just makes this movie so fucking excellent yeah. for me and i will say like when it comes to the authentic uh, the authenticity of this film there are so many more points like where it does everything right for me like and this sequence is very very much so one of those and uh the whole the whole part with uh, Jonathan once he's in the castle is wonderful for that because there's a degree of believability that this film brings like an of office authenticity and a and genuineness that comes with Johan to Nosferatu or Dracula's interactions it feels like I was saying it during I think when we were watching the movie like for the first time like I can really relate to Jonathan like he seems kind of valid for like being weirded out by Dracula but still sticking around at first and following through like showing him his plans because it's like even though he looks like this horrible rat beast if you've ever seen like portraits of the Habsburgs right? <laughs> like they do yeah, yeah, yeah. like it's yeah. kind of it's kind of authentic like 
there he's like old, really ugly nobility like nobility, in, in eastern yeah. europe like uh, during that time yeah inbreeding did so a lot of that he's just like an old like like inbred lord from the last of his line so he's gonna look like a rat person like the Habsburg lip was a real thing and like if i was jonathan like if i was in that scenario at that time without the context of bram stoker's dracula i would have gone through with it too like well right yeah and i mean he's he's come all of these thousands of miles probably traveling for weeks you know this is a this is a big get for his for the company that he works for you know uh, a count wanting to buy you know an old rundown mansion in their town that nobody else wants like that's a that's a great get and you know at the same time like i think that jonathan feels a little bit sorry for dracula as well which i think you're supposed to yeah because like yeah he he his appearance is monstrous but like he has been living alone in this castle which is likely in like a a shadow dimension or something outside of time he's absolutely a tragic figure oh yeah totally and and that's but even but even so he is still but just by the nature of his existence as a vampire as a creature of the night is still unable to not do evil and who better to depict that than herzog Right. Like, and and it comes through in the dialogue and we're in every aspect of it well yeah well. Like, just like like, like there's a sequence there's a sequence or two where uh dracula straight up has a monologue about just wanting to die well right like, yeah he, <laughs> he he even says like can you imagine what it's like to not be able to die even if you want it and then when he does die at the end there's almost a sense of relief to it. He, I mean, he literally embraces it. Like he's when, not, he's not able to, to like kill himself by staying out, you know, until the sun comes up. But when Lucy sacrifices herself and tricks him and keeps him distracted, feeding on her until the sun comes up, like, yeah, he goes to the window and he looks out at the sun as it shines in, you know, as he dies, like there's a, there's a sense of relief. Like he couldn't do this to himself but he has wanted it for so long that he embraces it yeah and and uh i love how literal that is because as he's feasting upon lucy like he he stops for a second to to break away and he's like oh shit i should probably get back to my coffin and she she pulls him back back in and he literally embraces her as his death uh, well, because it's, yeah, he, he's getting both things that he's wanted for so long, his companionship mm-hmm. uh, as a stand-in for love because he's been lonely, and also it, you know, it leads to his release finally from yeah. from this purgatory that he's existed in for hundreds of years, however long. And it's so much more gratifying, I think, to have like this this horrific figure almost have this have this very passive embrace towards death and to see it like as his first opportunity at love because it's all he's ever wanted as opposed to your standard like vampire fair well yeah the as somebody in the heart and the the brutalization of it and it's van helsing stepping in to save it you know and to, as to somebody save the town. as somebody who isn't his role in his existence is to bring death mm-hmm. and, you know he brings the plague to you know jonathan city because it just it 
comes with him. Death follows him, but he cannot die himself. So it's like to finally be able to have that release is is gratifying for him. Yeah. And, and I think it comes that, the hand, the hands of like this pure of heart, you know, person. And then we don't even like because the stake sequence still happens, but we don't, we don't see, see it. it yeah. And I love Van, that choice. Van Helsing just goes in and. Uh, and hammers him and comes back out. Yeah. Well, he goes in, de- well, declares he's going to do it. And, like, yeah. we don't, yeah. And he just, and he, he just comes, comes back with the sa- uh, with a stake painted red. It's mm. great, though, because <laughs> the horror is less about getting killed by Dracula or right. something pedestrian like that. And it's more of not being able to die. Right. It's, and it's, even, even at the end, exactly. you know, you see Jonathan turn into. He, he goes full vampire. Yeah. yeah a vampire, essentially. A vampire. And, it kind of brings it full circle because you realize the tragedy that he's in. Well, right, and it ends know. with it ends with him leaving the city on a horse, like galloping across the sand to undoubtedly bring death to some other unfortunate town. You know, the cycle the cycle continues. You've killed Dracula, but now the the curse uh, goes on, and and I think that all of that stuff is set up so well mm-hmm. in the the beginning part of the film when it is just Jonathan and Dracula in the castle and the conversations they have, you know, Dracula's monologues set up the those themes so well that you know by the end when everything sort of ties up all of those themes have been addressed in a in a very satisfying way oh yeah no completely we talked about it a little bit already but i do i do love jonathan's slow descent into vampirism again so often it's depicted as oh he's been he's been bit by the vampire is now vampire right and here it's it's a much more gradual progression as Dracula feasts upon him. He slowly falls into little, yeah. Vampirism. He drinks from him little by um, little, and he's, he's sick. It, it even yeah. seems clear that like he makes his way back to the town as sentient, you know, like it's yeah, just totally. or semi-sentient human, you know, just like as he falls to the illness. Well, that's the thing. That's what I like about this version as well is that he and Van Helsing are not the heroes at all. Like. Jonathan gets back to the city, but once he does, he does nothing at all for the rest of the film. (laughs) He sits in that chair in the corner of the room, and Van Helsing is just like a good old, you know, German science doctor man who, uh, you know, doesn't believe in the curse of vampirism. It's just, you know, this is just the plague. He's almost exclusively a hindrance in this Yeah, totally, yeah. Until he goes in at the end and drives the stake through an already dead Dracula's heart (laughs) just to ensure that he doesn't come back. Got double tap. Lucy, Lucy is the one who, once we get back to the village, once we're out of Dracula's castle, Lucy becomes the main character. She's the one who takes all of the agency. Right, and yeah. I when we started the film, I I was so mixed by it, and now that I've had a little bit more time to think about it, I almost exclusively like this fact. But when I in the moment of watching the film, there was one part of it that really like kind of rubbed me the wrong way, and that's during Lucy's beach uh, scene with Jonathan right before he leaves. 
which also I love because Jonathan's uh, told he needs to leave like today. He needs to go like this moment. He's like, cool. Let me just take a quick beach vacation with my yeah, let me with go my to my, let me go to my wife. Yeah, <laughs> with my wife to the beach real quick. <laughs> and, like, I mean, we're assuming like they live near the beach, but but still, it's like, oh, we'll just go on a day out real quick. Let's have a picnic, and then I'll I'll get to my. Well, job. I mean, yeah, we see her on the, at the beach multiple times. Like, yeah, they yeah. they live in a seaside town. But during that sequence, there's a bit of dialogue which rubbed me the wrong way in the moment. Uh, and that was like she says, I, I forget the. I'll paraphrase like, something about uh, her weak woman's heart. Yeah, or the heart. Yeah, like the heart of a weak woman, implying that women have weak hearts, not that she has a weak heart and is a woman. I was a little like, well, that's that's kind of bullshit. And like, there are a couple of justifications that can be brought to it. First off, it might be I don't know, but it it might just be like original dialogue from Bram Stoker's Dracula, which would relatively validate it. Uh, relatively. And then second off, it's the times. Yeah, it folks also, was sexist. Like, it, it fits the time period mm, this movie is set, and and so but, it's why I've come around fully on it. And also, it sets up her. It sets her up to be this like weak character, who's kind of you know like well, yeah. She faints. And, she faints when Jonathan comes back. Oh yeah, and like has uh, to be like dragged away. Yeah, and, and like it's it just yeah shows like oh you know it's she she falls into like the usual patriarchal bullshit, and then for her to come around and be the hero. Well of yeah, the she film is she great. ends up she ends up being capable of what nobody else of what the the other uh, male characters are not. She is dismissed by the man of science as you know as we would expect her to be you know as a quote-unquote hysterical woman who suits you know believes in these superstitions and then van helsing is completely ineffectual just like an absolute bullshit character in this movie (laughs) and and you know it's it's lucy who you know solves the mystery figures out what's going on and at the same time you know with with the the sequence of her walking through the dying city it's very much her coming to terms with her own death because she knows that she has to sacrifice herself to break the curse to defeat dracula so it's pretty powerful to have her walking through these scenes of death knowing that that's what she is going into herself. Oh yeah. But for a very heroic, uh, for a very heroic reason, you know? And she like, she like sleuths her way into it too. She like, she finds, she realizes that no one else is going to do anything about this. So she goes to like the, the booklet that, uh, Jonathan brought with him about vampirism. That the gypsies, that the gypsies gave him. him. Yeah. And, uh, and like, she finds this fact herself. Chekhov's, Chekhov's gypsy book. And you see like her realization, like she's doing a research and she's like, oh shit. Like only someone who's like, like pure-hearted, who's denied him, can can kill him. A it's pure-hearted like, woman that's distracts me. him until the the crow of the cock. Yeah. yeah. All right, let's do this, and um, the sun will obliterate him because yeah, his cock did crow. <laughs> hey. <laughs> um, and uh, speaking of, I do I do want to transition into that scene where she she uh, denies Dracula. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes. Oh, where film. he comes to her the first yeah. time. Yeah. Where he walk, where it's looking into the mirror, and you see the door open. You see his shadow come in, but of course, vampires don't have a reflection. Yeah, that is a great scene, it's, and that's a that's that a great example too of like the cinematography being extremely genuine. Like it's a shot of her like from the mirror, and we have the door in the background, and it's just it's a clean shot, just her sitting there, and it feels kind of off kilter in it, not like in an intentional like crazy dutch angle way but it just feels like the camera was just set up in that spot of the room it, it's not like centered on the mirror like the mirror's not in the perfect third or anything it's just in the shot 
And we see the door, like, slowly open, and no one comes through, and then Dracula enters from the side. Well, we see, the sh- we see his shadow. Yeah, yeah that's shadow. right. God, and it's, his it's... shadow on the door as it closes, and then, yeah, his physical body enters the, the frame on the right. It's all the epic it, yeah, hallmarks it's, it's with, the, with a genuine framing, and it's great. I, I absolutely adore it. And, two, as a plot point, I, I particularly like that she denies him... Like, as a a married woman, like, with a lover, because it, it's not about her being, like, pure and her being the perfect choice because she's a virgin, because of, you know, whatever thing that's really outside of her own agency. It's, it is totally her decision to do that. And it's particularly powerful because we see Jonathan fall to Dracula because to like Dracula's hypnotic gaze and he's unable to resist it. Right. There's several scenes like Mm -hmm. he's, he's displayed that like he's, he's a fighting guy. Like he can, he can handle himself. He's a journeyman. And when, when he falls to Dracula's gaze, he, he kind of becomes very fetal and like uh, adopts that like hand up over his mouth, like a scared child in bed. And it, and, and it's because of like Dracula's power, but even yet, like Lucy is able to resist him uh through that and uh and and again like her uh i i love i love like the dialogue and her approach to it the way that she she denies it is is very you can see that she is afraid you can see that she's trying her best to cover that fear and to rise against dracula she and does it's what not she until does he leaves that she yeah. just completely collapses she does and what she so does good. despite her fear yeah it's, like yeah, well, yeah. Act- from an actress like even the early sequences didn't rub me too bad of a wrong way because she's a great actress isabella like, johnny well, is that's the thing actress, while she's yeah. not uh like virginal in this movie she's the way she's costume and shot throughout the movie is very angelic almost yeah you know? she's always in yeah she's always in white she's porcelain skin well yeah in every visual you know. way she is she is portrayed as the pure right woman but it's it's of a pure heart instead of you know just like pure of body which was all I wanted, <laughs> like, and that makes it all the better. Like, and it's it's not like a chosen prophecy kind of thing. It's because she chooses to be, and we see her dark night of the soul, the, there, um, and it's great. the The costume design in this movie is great as well. Spec fucking uh, especially especially all of Dracula's costumes. Uh, Every character, really, yeah. Jonathan has like a great journeyman costume. Uh, Lucy looks uh, like like we were saying, like just this perfect, like pure of heart person. And again, it feels very genuine. Uh, like her, all of her like white frilled clothing and her like her heavy eyeliner, like it looks great. And uh, of course, Nosferatu and Renfeld too has this delightful yeah, purple suit. It, it fits the over the top character totally. Really well. Yeah, I uh, I do want to talk uh, or mention briefly a couple of aspects of the production of this film, uh, just because I think they're worth bringing up. Oh yeah. Um, first and foremost, we've we've been talking about this for a while, but we didn't mention that. Um, there are two versions of this film, a German and English version, because the the studio uh, that was producing this film said that they wanted it to be uh, a little bit more accessible to international audiences. So they while asking that from Herzog, right? So they re- they <laughs> I mean... requested they requested that Herzog provide an English version as well, uh, to which he um, he did. Uh, so all of the dialogue scenes they shot in both uh, the production's native German and also English. Uh, we watched the German version because even Herzog says that he 
believes it to be the most authentic version of his film. Uh, so I think that it's good to to watch the film the way the director intends. Uh, but the English version is also good. I have seen both. Um, Same. The first time I watched it was in English. I, I have to say, like, I would much rather have directors do that more often than do, like, the giallo d- style dubbing, dubbing, you know? Yeah. It, that's, it's just subtitles. It's yeah. a little bit more distracting. The I mean, the there, this this film is pretty much entirely ADR'd, uh, even so. Yeah. And there, and there are there are a few times... Well, I mean, sometimes you just gotta do it because it can be hard to shoot sound on a set. Oh, God, yeah, especially um, in the 70s. But, uh... And there, are, I, I will say that from a technical perspective, there are a few times where the ADR does not line up super well. Um, yeah, like there's an opening bit, like when we first meet Renfeld. That is particularly because he is a French actor. Yeah. Uh, so he, really? as far as I know, he did not speak very good German. So that's <laughs> no why. Shit. So I'm, I'm pretty sure they got a different. German voice actor to ADR his lines. So I think that's he his seems to be the worst. His his don't line up quite as well. So as far as I know, apparently his his cackling and it's been a long time since I've seen it. His his performance is actually more over the top in the English version because he spoke more English than he did German. So when they were able to do, when they did the English version, he was more comfortable doing his own lines so he could put more into his performance rather than focusing on trying to remember his German lines. That's a really cool fact. Um, that's really neat. So that's that's why his stuff in particular, his his ADRing looks a little bit off. Um, it's pretty much on point for, and I don't... Th- I might be wrong, but I don't think Isabella Johnny is a native German actor. I, th- I think she's... I would have to look that up. I might be wrong. But uh, Kinski, of course, is German, and Bruno Gans, uh, R.I.P. the legend, he died, like, last year, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, he... Gans well before his time. Well, he was pretty old. Um, I know. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it for the sake of the pun. Yeah, he's, I like, he's I like how you too. just no-sold it there. <laughs> <laughs> I respect that. I'm used to, I'm used to this bullshit. Um, I, I'm, I'm used to being no-sold. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> I don't. I try not to encourage you whenever possible. <laughs> I mean, what was it like way back in high school? Like when I was like making puns all the time. Like my whole friend group. Y'all we all, all started decided. throwing things at yeah, you. Yeah, no, you decided. Yeah. yeah, you 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 made the collect. You you got together as a community. You banded together because of me, which I really appreciated. We and made- you decided that if I ever made any time I made a pun, I'd get hit. Yeah, hit and you or throw something at I you. I would not let that shit stop me. Are you kidding? <laughs> no, it, to, your, to your credit, it did not yeah. decrease the frequency of your <laughs> buttons at all. Um, but it did increase our friendship, which I thought of was course. Yeah. It's, I, th- I thought it was a fair exchange, honestly. And the, I, I didn't resent y'all for it. The real puns were the friends we made along <laughs> the way. <laughs> um the the other thing that I wanted to uh, bring up about the production is some of the uh, locations that they shot in. Uh, first and foremost, I I was the first time I saw this somewhat surprised, but also very much appreciated the decision to shoot mostly in Holland because Holland, a lot of those villages have not changed much in centuries, so the 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 towns look very much like they did when they were built, you know, several hundred years ago. So I think that 
for for a setting when you don't have much of a budget and you can't afford to like build really lavish sets which they certainly could not do with a crew of 16 people i think choosing to shoot in a place that looks you know like it could be a stand-in for the 1800s spot on yeah Um, it works really well too i think there is one moment where there's like a thermostat in the and, in and the, the doorbell in, yeah. in the same shot. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. see walking into um, uh, what's what's the character's name? Uh, uh, was it Van Helsing's house? No, well, oh no no no! It was it was their friends. It yeah, was Mina. Was she, yeah, Mina. Yeah, because Mina just died. Um, yeah, like Lucy walking in through the front door, you see a, 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 a you see both a thermostat and, and a doorbell and or a, an inter- no, a smoke alarm. Intercom. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a big old yeah like thing on the door, and I'm just like, come on, guys! Like, and that was, <laughs> and then like throughout the opening sequences in the town, you see like some electric street lamps, and they're off. They're not like on, but like it's during the day. You see electric street lamps, and also some like modern painted like metal rails. But apart from that, like, it's it, all very forgivable. Um, but it's like, you know, I mean, low even budget, you know, like, they did shoot in Holland to get a lot of that authenticity. Yeah. While there were bits and pieces that they couldn't avoid, like, for the sure. most part, it works super well. Oh, yeah. And if you're, and if you're engrossed enough in the, in the film, those things are much more apt to, to go by the wayside. Yeah. I've seen this, this is probably the fifth time I've seen this movie and I didn't notice the smoke alarm uh, and the thermostat until this watch. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, I think that, that definitely, shouting is, really loudly. that definitely uh, says something. Yeah. And another thing I wanted to mention is that Herzog wanted to shoot the stuff uh, in Dracula's castle. He wanted to shoot that in, in Transylvania, Rad. but could not because the, um, the president, or I, I think it might have been a dictator at the time, said that he didn't want any films shot in his country that were not heroic depictions of, of Vlad for tourism. Of, of Vlad Tepes. The the wait, whoa, wait, whoa, yeah, wait. yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, yeah. I thought it was just gonna that's that that thought was gonna stop. No, 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 it. no, oh, no. We just don't want to like no, make no, Transylvania no, 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 no. look more like a horror scape. No, 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 no. He didn't want. If there was going to be an adaptation of Dracula, he did not want anything that was not a heroic depiction of, of Vlad, of Vlad, of Vlad Te- quote, the, the Impaler, unquote. Tepes. Dra- Dracul, which literally means dragon. I'm going to sound like a... Vlad the Impaler, like, killed his son by, like, whacking him in the head with a spike. He was a bad dude, like, period. Like, yeah. just own it, Transylvania. Like, uh, come on. I'm going to sound like a, a dumbass yeah. here, but I my geography is shit. Wasn't Transylvania in the USSR at the time as well? Uh, I don't know. That's a good question. Because it was Eastern Europe, it's Eastern right? Europe. And it's, like, what was Transylvania is technically part of Romania, I believe. During Vlad the Impaler's time, it was Wakalia. Yeah, Wakalia. But, yeah. but when they shot it, when they shot the this, film. right? Yeah. No, it no, was like, <laughs> the, Soviet, the Soviet Union did not exist during uh, Vlad the Impaler's um, time. Because like that, that might have been part of it as well. Um, yeah, well, yeah, Herzog was you know was a german filmmaker this was in you know the time where the the berlin wall was still up so there was the eastern block of germany mm-hmm. so i i don't think it was it's not like he was uh um, this was an american production so i don't think they would have had 
a problem shooting in the Soviet Union, but it was because it was because the leader of uh, the political leader of Transylvania at the time was like, nah, no, nah, unless you're going to make a film that's a heroic depiction of of Vlad the Impaler, then nah, you can't shoot in my country. I think what we could yeah definitely definitively say is whatever situation the na- the nation state was in at the time, it was probably volatile. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So as as far as I know, especially they, if they want to defend Vlad the Impaler, as far as. <laughs> I just can't get over that. That's really as as far as I know, they they shot all of that stuff in uh, in Germany, in the Alps. I think uh, it looks not it. positive, but so I, I do think that it's funny that the uh, that Holland is a stand-in for Germany and Germany is a stand-in for Transylvania in this movie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and going back to about like this, how small the crew is, and not being able to do epic sets. I do want to comment on how epic the the final sequence with the town is like that that's an epic set if ever oh sure Um, yeah like oh my god like the the amount of ruin that they depict from multiple multiple angles uh from all over the city like there's the the entire town square but from but but from a a set building perspective the town is already there all they all they had to do all they had to do was scatter some trash and shit i mean and we should also mention that if anything for or, um, you know, those unique elements like Kinski or Renfeld or like the the rats in the city. Just great imagery, rats. great stuff. Um, yeah, overall, I would give it a four and a half out of five. I would definitely recommend checking it out. Um, and also definitely check out Herzog on Herzog. It's one of my all time favorite books. It's it's great. Herzog's great. Loved it. Uh, a lot of the things I didn't like about this movie when I first watched it uh, completely brought me around by rewatching it again with, you know, slightly older, more acquired taste. Yeah, I, I had a great time watching this film. It it really inspired me, even. I uh, I just, I love how genuine and, uh, you know, this, this portrayal of, of Dracula is. It, it's, it's great. For all the reasons we've already said. So, I'm... Um, oh. Like the, you know, my issues with the the editing, especially towards the beginning, I think you guys brought up like very valid justification for it as well. But for me, it just it it hampered the other long atmospheric shots that deserve to be atmospheric. And it had me like kind of slowed and, you know, before we got to those as well, like an already kind of bored by those sequences a little bit. Never enough to pull me out It, it at all. Um, and any of the, the, the incredible atmospheric sequences always were able to draw me back in. No, I, I have a lot of great things to say. Almost, mostly great things to say about this film. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to do, heart. uh, let's learn to count to four. One, two, three, four. Point five stars. Ah, ah, ah. So that's a four and a half for you? Yeah, yeah. After some thought. I was, I, I came into this podcast today, uh, like, walking over here. I was going to give it four. But after talking with you guys about it, like, you, you've, you've brought me around on some stuff. And even my things, I feel, are more personal than they are uh, legitimately founded. It, it's just the, the tiny things that even that and those things are forgivable, like the thermostat and other shit like that, like, especially considering their crew size. So, yeah, no, no, uh, 4.5. 4.5 for me. Yeah. I feel good about it. Honestly, for me, my my gripes with it are from very minor technical standpoints as well. Um, stuff like the thermostat, the, the little bit of uh, not super great ADR, stuff like that. But overall, um, I, I think you described it a great way when you said that 
that it's inspiring. I also find this film really inspiring. Uh, when I saw it for the first time, it inspired me at a time as an artist when I was in need of inspiration. Uh, so I'll always, you know, have a lot of love for this film for that. And I think it's an, just an incredible film all around great direction and writing from Herzog, uh, an incredible performance from Klaus Kinski and Bruno Gans, RIP, uh, and Isabella Johnny, uh, really just a, literally a, everyone. Yeah. A, a very, a very strong, uh, poignant film across the board. It's going to be a four and a half from me as well. So we are all in agreement. That's a unanimous four and a half out of five pods for Nosferatu Phantom of the Night. Yeah. So that should bring us to the end of this episode. But before we do, let's not forget a word from our sponsor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah our sponsor. Okay. Um, uh, <clears throat> uh, the, the sponsor for this episode was brought to you by uh, the, uh, uh, the Spookies Night Caller. Uh, having trouble summoning your children of the night... Blow our patented whistle, and you can call your children to you. Spookies, children of the night caller. Never go want for wolves again. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Um, what do we have on the docket for next week? Um, tentatively, uh, it's going to be Rock and Roll Nightmare with a special guest. Okay, cool. Tentatively. So, otherwise, we'll figure something out. So, tentatively, that. Uh, tune in next week for... <laughs> if, um, if you like the show, be sure to uh, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your podcasts. We would really love and appreciate uh, if you'd take a few seconds out of your day to do that. Um, smash those motherfucking likes, baby. And we won't suck your blood. Blay. Uh, blay. <laughs> <laughs> um, you can also follow us on Twitter at pod people pod, um, for updates and stuff. We'll probably tweet about what we're doing next week. Definitively. Once we know for sure. So yeah, do that. Follow us on letterboxd. Uh, if that's your jam at letterboxd.com slash pod people pod, for a list of all the films we've talked about on the show, our average ratings, links to those episodes, you know, the ding-dang thing. Follow me on Twitter at Mr. Van Awesome. I'm at Mr. Sheets. Uh, and I tweet for LightArc Studio. And, uh, yeah. And, hey, don't don't think of us being, of it being us being tentative for this rock and roll thing that we're doing next week. We're leaving you in suspense. There you go. There you go. Get, you know... Be on the edge of your seat. You don't know. Are we going to do it next week? Are we going to do something totally different? Are we just going to review, like, uh, something that's not even a horror movie? You don't know. Even we don't know. Yeah, that's that's how good we are at suspense. Mm -hmm. That's true. Uh, you can also find my art station uh, under Cleveland Mosier or Iron Prism. Yeah, uh, hit us up at uh, lightarkstudio.com. We uh, uh, join our Discord, uh, see what we got going on. We've got a couple of cool projects. Uh, we're doing a fun little Kickstarter right now for um, one of our side projects, Mission Adventure, which is a really fun, like, GPS game. You know, if you have, like, kids or whatever, it's, like, a story-based, like, Pokemon Go, and you can, like, send your kids around a park. And uh, it's it's 
Awesome. And then also, of course, it stares back. Come join our Discord. Come hang out with us. If you want to see how good we are at suspense, definitely join our Discord. Legitimately, <laughs> in that case. Um, yeah, that is uh, three plus hours of game for free. All you got to do is join our Discord, join our community, and uh, you'll get a link to download. And hopefully the game soon. will soon be on Steam as well. Yeah. If you uh, Roughly are, two weeks the time of recording, uh, probably a week from the time of listening. Yeah. If you're too shy to uh, join the Discord and you just want to play the game, then, uh, yeah, that'll be available soon. So thank you, as always, for listening. Tune in next week to see whatever the fuck we're doing. And uh, I'm going to, without further ado, let old Werner Herzog play us out. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic. I see it more full of obscenity it's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in